Civilize, hone, improve, better, elevate, sophistication, and precision. These are words that are actually synonyms for the word refinement, and not to put too fine a point on it, are the words that can be used to describe what Porsche was after when they looked to elevate their attempts at building a sports car for the masses. How did Porsche go about making necessary refinements to the pre-A356? By creating a masterpiece that would simply be known as the Porsche 356A. Welcome to Porsche, never substituted. I'm your host, Will Veach, and this is part three of our look into the legendary 356 and the history behind all of the iterations of the predecessor to the 911. While it may seem logical, in hindsight, to have another version of the pre-A356, this wasn't always the case for the leadership at Porsche. Porsche was still churning out designs for tractors with a company called Manisman and in fact was doing so well that Porsche spun up an entirely new company just for tractor manufacturing. Albert Prinzing, who was instrumental in the early success of the Prias, had decided to leave Porsche KG and moved to the newly formed Porsche Diesel Motorenbau, much to his satisfaction as well as to the benefit of the Porsche families. Besides the 356 tractors and race cars that Porsche was producing in 1954, they also started creating designs for a new German tank. We'll talk about the other things Porsche was building slash designing in another episode, but suffice to say that Porsche was starting to benefit financially from the talents of the teams in Zuffenhausen. With the departure of Prinzing, a former executive at Studebaker was tapped to fill the role of technical manager over production and experimental departments. His name was Klaus von Rucker. This was all very good timing as the original Work One factory was now being vacated by American Armed Forces on December 1st of 1955, exactly 25 years after the founding of the Porsche engineering and design firm. If you recall from an earlier podcast, Porsche had decided to build a new facility called Work Two, so now Porsche had more space than they knew what to do with. That, however, didn't last very long. Very Porsche said this of the event. Quote, on the 25th anniversary of the Porsche firm, exactly on that day, our original works was returned to us. If we'd known what would happen, we might not have needed work too. End quote. Starting in 1954, Porsche was working on a project called Project 656 that would possibly see the production for the 1956 model year. The 656 project, or Type 530 as it was also called, was essentially a car that had a rear seat that could sit two adults. It wasn't meant as a replacement for the 356, but more of an add-on to the range. Think Porsche Panamera, only in 1954. That idea, for good or ill, never really got off the ground and would never see anything other than a clay model. Another project that never saw the light of day, but nevertheless was considered, was the Type 644 which was a design that would essentially bastardize the 356 by making it longer and giving the rear a higher headroom. Erwin Comenda, designer of the 356, was not amused. Luckily, Comenda would instead work on the refining touches of the 356 that had been selling very well. If you're like me, it's sometimes difficult to tell the early model 356s one from another. 
While researching this topic, I found that I'm not quite as stupid as I thought. The body of the 356A was essentially the same as the pre-A's, with a couple of subtle differences. With the help of Reuter, a bent window model was to be the showcase of the Cominda design. Chrome bumpers, a new deck lid showing off the new Porsche crest that we discussed in episode 1, recessed circular taillights, wraparound bumpers, and other changes were actually considered, but not all would make it into the 1956 model year. The body would essentially be the same, and so much so, in fact, that some of the marketing materials used were just simply updated with a new designation. One of the bigger changes was to the 1.5-liter engine that was upgraded to a 1.6 with a new three-piece crankcase. The engines were to be known as the 1600 and 1600 Super and displayed better figures for both power and torque. The 1600, known as the Type 616-1, offered 60 horsepower, while the 1600 Super, which was designated as the 616-2, produced 75 horsepower. These engines would not necessarily be replacing the smaller engines at the time, but added as an option. You could get a total of five different power plants for the 356A. The 1300, with 44 horsepower, the 1300 Super with 60 horsepower, the two aforementioned 1600s, and the spectacular 1500 GS Carrera Coupe that provided drivers with 100 horsepower. All of these were part of the Technical Program 1, or T1, as you might have heard these models referred to. I want to take a few minutes and talk about the GS Carrera. The car used a bit of a different engine than did the other 356s of the 1956 model year. The GS actually used the Type 547-1 engine, which was the same four camshaft motor that was used in the 550 RS Spider. Porsche touted the GS in America this way, quote, We predict that the new Carrera engine by Porsche will take the motoring world by storm. The name Carrera was given to this great power plant in honor of its victories in the Carrera Mexicana in 1952, 53, and 54. With a Carrera engine, the Porsche production car takes advantage of the FIA Gran Turismo class and becomes the first production sports car in the 1500 class to reach the 125 mile per hour limit and at the same time remain a comfortable and easy handling touring car. No engine was ever put to such rigorous test as the Carrera. Known during its trial period as the engine which powered the famous Porsche Spider to victory after victory, the Carrera is in keeping with the Porsche spirit and is the latest in a series which has dominated the scene since its first day on the track. The Carrera may be had in either coupe, the convertible, or the speedster. End quote. So how did the variant come to be? The famous Porsche engineer Ernst Fuhrmann decided one day to bolt the engine into his own 356. He said of the Endeavour, quote, I put the first one in my own car, and people around here drove it and said, that's not too bad, end quote. It was not only not so bad, but good enough that Ferry Porsche had one put into his own 356. The car was capable of speeds reaching 124 miles per hour and a 0 to 60 time of 11.25 seconds. Okay, back to the rest of the A's. 
Porsche describes the main differences of the model as, quote, one of the key visual differences between the A-series and the original 356 was a single-piece curved panoramic windscreen. The front indicators were always integrated into the horn grille, and all models had a modified front lid handle with inset Porsche crest. The tail lights were teardrop-shaped as of March of 1957, end quote. The rims and tires of the 356As would also be changed. The tires have a smaller rim diameter of 5.60 by 15, and the rims are an inch wider going from 3.5 to 4.5 inches. Funnily enough, the tire manufacturers were so concerned about the width that Porsche had to provide in writing an affidavit that the manufacturers would not be held liable should any issues arise from the 4.5 inch wide tires. Some of the refinements that were less visible but much more important were plentiful. There was a new chassis that Helmuth Bott called a more controllable car. Entering the car would also become easier due to the lowering of the floor pan by one and a half inches. Now what I didn't realize was that this was accomplished by simply removing the false floorboards. The dash was different with the tachometer located in the middle and the speedometer to the left and the oil temperature and fuel gauge to the right, which were combined. Carl Ledvigson in Porsche Excellence Was Expected stated that, quote, Above the dash, acting in part as a glare shield, was a combing with foam rubber padding, one of the first attempts to add to the safety of a car's interior, end quote. One other thing to note is that the boss doesn't necessarily get the last say. Ferry Porsche was actually overruled regarding the starter switch and the ignition key in that Ferry wanted the two to remain separate. He didn't get his wish. The two were subsequently combined. A rather new option and innovation that was offered because of the new space available on the dash was a radio. Further refinements that would be made as standard equipment were a headlight flasher, self-canceling turn signals, and automatic interior lighting. The car was also much more quiet due to the additional sound dampening that was part of the changes from the pre-A. Options included a clock and a steering lock, if you so desired. How much would this new refinement cost you? In 1956, the 1300 Coupe or the 1600 Speedster would set you back about $2,450 U.S. dollars, or the equivalent of $26,000 in 2022. If you wanted to upgrade to a Super 16 Cabriolet, it would be roughly $3,200 U.S. dollars, or $34,000 in today's money. To put that in perspective, a mint Concorde Level 356A today would be worth up to about 682,000 US dollars. Not too shabby. The 356A would also show what the Work 1 and Work 2 factories were capable of. In 1956, 17 cars per day would be the assembly output for about 4,200 cars, and by 1957, that would be 5,200. One thing to note is that Porsche would pride itself on attention to detail with really no large-scale staff increase. The craftsmanship was as such that an internship was instituted that lasted four years. John Bolster, from Autocar and Great Britain, would write of the internship endeavor, quote, It will thus be seen that in the works the standard of the best Edwardian marquees are still observed, though they have long since been forgotten elsewhere, end quote. 
This was no small thing for Bolster, who was reluctant to embrace the new Porsche. He loved the new 356A and noted the tail-heavy feeling has gone and the average driver would not be conscious that this is a rear-engine car. One author named Uli Weisselman wrote, quote, Even dear granny can take a turn faster with a Porsche than with an average car, end quote. Speaking of dear granny, that actually reminds me of a story. I don't know if it has anything to do with this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. In 2001, I invited my dear mother, who was definitely a granny at the time, to take a spin in my Porsche 996. She threw the car into gear and headed for the freeway entrance. Now, by the time we hit the freeway itself, she was well in excess of 100 miles per hour and was gleefully giving it more. I was terrified, to say the least, and after I told her to slow down, she calmly stated that she was already going the speed limit. Now, dear mom was looking at the tachometer instead of the speedometer. Still not sure how she messed that up, and I honestly think she was just making excuses for pinning my butt to the seats. But I digress. Road and Track would say of the new 356A that they were, quote, hunting up sharp curves for the sheer pleasure of being in control of so exceptionally maneuverable a car, end quote. Ludvigsen says of the 356A that it had become the car against which all others were measured. More praise would follow with perhaps the most resounding recommendation coming from Griff Borgeson of Sports Car Illustrated. He said in the June 1956 issue that, quote, The new Porsche 1600 is one of the world's truly fine cars. Every hour you spend with it adds to your appreciation of the excellence of its design, workmanship, and performance. It's a supremely good machine in traffic or on the open highway and a world beater on winding roads. It makes you hunger for a handy Alp to slide up and down all day. As a precision instrument for maintaining high average speeds regardless of terrain, it's a revelation. You can corner a Porsche in a sedate and conventional manner if you choose, just as easily as you can wag its tail and get through short, tight radius turns with amazing nimbleness and speed. In more open curves, you can drift all four wheels and the smooth transition from bite to slip is almost imperceptible. Thanks to these characteristics and a set of magnificent brakes, the Porsche is hilariously controllable and agile. One of the most salient of the 1600's features is its solid, built-to-last, and last feel. There are no squeaks or rattles at all in the test car's body, and everything worked perfectly and smoothly. Its paint is like porcelain. The upholstery is of very good quality. The small curved windshield is beautifully and substantially mounted and is without visual distortion. End quote. Summing up his thoughts, Borgeson finished by saying, quote, You don't get much iron as such for your money, but you do get an engineering masterpiece in the full, literal sense of the term, one of the most significant technical accomplishments of our time. End quote. That's not too bad of an endorsement, to say the least. More improvement and refinement would continue in the spring of 1957 with the quieter wiper motors, padded sun visors, better door locks, and even a padded coat hook instead of the previous chrome hook that they said would be better for safety. 
Not so insignificant would be the placement of the speedometer that was moved from the left to the right side of the tachometer so that a rally navigator could easily read it, or you could terrify your friends on how fast you were going. New oval taillights were added to replace the old circular ones, but not everyone was pleased by that. Innovation continued with the T2 designation, or Technical Program 2, in the 1958 model year that would be the last major changes to the 356A models. A change to the lubrication system was one that was somewhat alarming to the customers. The new changes enabled the cars to be safe at higher temperatures, and the owners were concerned with the sight of the heat surpassing 250 degrees. So what did Porsche do to help ease the mind of their customers? Well, they simply removed the oil gauge temperature numbers. Problem solved. There were several other changes to the 1958 model year, including cosmetics that would show a new larger rear window in the cabriolet. You could also order a hardtop in 1958 at a price of 285 US dollars. What some would consider controversial was the routing of the exhaust through the rear bumpers. The Speedster would become the cheapest of the line during the 356A run and would be the car that racers and rally drivers would gravitate to. A little bit different than today when the Speedsters are one of the most expensive. By 1959, the majority of Porsches that were sold were exported abroad. A lion's share of cars sold would be, in no small part to Max Hoffman, purchased in the United States, around 40%. Hoffman would cease to be the representative of Porsche that same year as the company wanted its own representation and would spin up Porsche of America that was led by a Hoffman associate, Eric Phileas. Poor Max Hoffman, who paved the way for Porsche in the U.S. Now I'm just kidding. Porsche would continue to pay Hoffman through 1964 with a royalty of every single Porsche sold in America. To round out 1959, Porsche would see the death of Ferdinand Porsche's widow at the age of 82. Ferry Porsche, then 50, would receive numerous awards, and Louise Piesch, Ferry's sister, would be recognized by the President of Austria for her contributions to the success of the Porsche companies and also for service to her country. Not one to rest on their laurels, the Porsche company would also debut at the Frankfurt Auto Show the all-new 356B. All told, the 356A would run from model year 1956 through 1959 and sell over 20,000 cars. There were coupes, cabriolets, speedster, and D versions of the car during those years, and all of them are highly prized and sought after. A simple sentence from Haggerty sums it up, quote, Any 356A is a desirable car, end quote. The innovation and refinement that Porsche engineered allowed for the sophistication and precision that would elevate a better Porsche for drivers, whether they be a granny or a seasoned pro. The car that paved the way? The simply named Porsche 356A. Thanks for listening. Please share and tell your friends, family, and fellow Porsche lover, and I also want to hear from you. I'm collecting Porsche stories for future podcasts and would love to hear how your love affair with Porsche began. You can email me at stories at neversubstituted.com. Support our podcast by going to neversubstituted.com and check out our shop links and some cool stuff. 
plus a preview of next week's show. Please also follow us on Instagram at Never Substituted or at Mr. Will Veach. Special thanks to Dennis Schrader Photography in Austin, Texas. You can see some amazing automotive prints and artwork at FastLanePhotoWorks.com. Also, much of the information from this podcast is from Porsche. Excellence was expected by Carl Lindvigson. I'm Will Veach. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope to see you again soon.